election campaign speech that President Theodore Roosevelt gave at the lip of the Grand Canyon. By the time he had left office, Roosevelt had established 230 million acres of public lands, 150 million acres of which were set aside as national forests. When on the 159th anniversary of Roosevelt's birth in 2017, the current administration announced its intention to reduce two national monuments that had been created by former presidents, Grand Staircase Escalante and Beers Ears, Mr. Gessner decided to take a road trip west and follow some of Roosevelt's footsteps to experience the grandeur of our shared public lands for himself. And I'm very pleased to welcome essayist, nature writer, and cartoonist David Gessner to our show now. Hello. Thank you. Is this Leonard? Uh, this is Leonard, and I hope you're David hey, Gessner. La last time we talked, we talked ospreys. <laughs> well, we've come a long way. Uh, That's right. You write right. that you that you've loved Theodore Roosevelt from the time you were a child, warts and all. <laughs> Uh, you know, I wasn't so focused on the warts as I am, you know, at the moment. Um, I don't know if I might have written that, but I, I think the real kind of uh, infatuation began reading Edmund Morris's great book, you know, where he describes, first of all, the make make your body scenes where the weak, sickly Roosevelt starts to basically become an upper crust Rocky in a mm -hmm. montage workout scene and then heads out after his wife and mother have died to the badlands and throws himself into the the um to the world there and i feel like that's some of the most contagious biographical writing i've ever read um and and you know and i liked i liked the use of of teddy for creating energy in myself he was a good role model in that way of course as we grow up we start to see a more complex and messier and hippo more hypocritical picture. But um, but there's still some core energy there that I think is invigorating. Was he the first president to campaign for re-election? And was there a need for that at the time? Well, you know, he was often compared to a steam engine, locomotive, and he was the first one to do a whistle-stop campaign mm -hmm. tour to the tune of 14,000 miles in 2003. And he had kind of a chip on his shoulder at the time because he had become president um, by assassination of McKinley and not by the ballot box. So he really wanted to win. And he had fallen in love with the West during his time in the Badlands, and he got out to the West, and he really became kind of this um, favorite of, of the American West, which was always a great support base for him. So yeah, he was, he was really, you know, he was giving three speeches a day for months on end and, um, and seemed to be tireless, basically. One thing I learned in reading was that part of that tirelessness grew out of his caffeine addiction, which he'd start early in the morning and he'd go until, as Morris put it, he would fall energetically to sleep at night. And of course he created the Maxwell House tagline. I mean, it wasn't a tagline then, but he's he's the one who said, "Good to the last drop," <laughs> and and that's well, kind of how he lived <laughs> to the last. Was drop. the event was the event of this speech the first time that he had seen the Grand Canyon? And uh, I mean, I yeah. remember the first time I did. Uh, I was quite overwhelmed. Yeah, I mean, I write about that in the very beginning of the book. You know, as you know, I split the book up into these kind of third person 
fictional interludes, kind of as a tribute to Edmund Morris, actually, though I go more fictiony into them, more deeply into the character. And I write that he had written most of the speech as he was hurtling, you know, in the train toward the Grand Canyon. But that morning before he gave the leave it as it is speech, he went up on horseback. And of course, he was a great birder, speaking of ospreys, and he um, could identify all these, these birds as he was going along the Grand Canyon. And then he got to the edge. And he, like almost everybody else who goes there for the first time, was overcome by it. So I speculate, as somebody who writes about nature a lot, that that moment added much to the speech, that he did some scribbling and crossing out and last second um, inspired writing. And I think that comes through in that in that great speech, which environmentally, you know, um, it's like right up there. It's the environmental equivalent of the Gettysburg Address. I mean, he really gets at all the main tropes, including something that's become cliche now, but wasn't cliche then. The idea of we're saving this for our children's children's children, which if you get past the cliche of it is kind of brilliant, right? Because we're imagining through our bloodline into the future a place that can still inspire the awe and be as pristine as it was for us. Did John Muir have any influence on him? He went on a three-day camping trip through Yosemite with John Muir, although I assume that he knew how to pronounce the park's name at the time. Well, yeah, he, I don't think he called it Yosemite, or, and he wasn't a Yosemite himself. Um, <laughs> but he, um, that was a couple weeks after the, Grand, uh, after the Grand Canyon speech. And so he came in, he was supposed to attend, this is, you know, he's a sitting president, He's supposed to attend this huge fundraiser. Instead, he gets a couple of rangers and Muir, and they skirt civilization, as he puts it. They end up in the middle of a blizzard hiking, and the rangers' notes after the fact say, the president was mired down in the snow, which kind of brings to mind a hippo, I guess, and uh, in, a, in a mud mire. And they fought through the blizzard. They camped out. Um, and made a big fire, and they woke up the next morning covered with four inches of snow, which is just a fantastic story when you think the pre this is the president of the United States. Now, in that chapter that I write about, I actually anticipated some of the recent John Muir uh, controversy, which I can get into a little bit, but, um, you know, mm -hmm. Muir was not... Let's stick to T.R. Yeah. yeah, let's, yeah. So, um, and, and Muir says of that trip, that he had his differences with the president, uh, though I think their influences, they influenced each other in their language. But he said, could I help it if I was, you know, partly in love with him after that trip? And so mm -hmm. I'm not a strict biographer. I'm a, I call myself a biographical adventurer. So at the end of that chapter, I say, look, I know TR is flawed and I know um, there are dark sides, but, um, uh, and, and I know they may take away my uh, card for the, from the biographical guild, but can I help it if I'm sometimes a little in love with this guy, too? Because of the, just the sheer energy and probably the only president who described the job as fun. Now, when he called on citizens to handle the land so that their children's children will get the benefit uh, in his speech at the Grand Canyon, was that an unusual view at the time? I think a lot of the language was new. And a lot of, you know, I say in the book that he not only had to make this argument that seemed preposterous to a lot of people, we're just going to simply put things aside, um, but he had to create the arena in which the, that fight was fought. And 
the language which was used. So yeah, he was in, he was um, he was things that are cliche now were new then, and of course, um, and I you may be getting to this, so I don't want to jump the gun, but of course, a large part of how he did that is through the Antiquities Act, mm-hmm. which was passed by Congress in 1906, and you know in that. Um, in that act, there are the words, the discretion of the president. And to have the word discretion and TR in the same sentence for a lot of congressmen was a little like having our current president discretion in the same sentence. But he went right to work. And the thing about the Antiquities Act is it, unlike other ways of saving land, it gives the direct power to the president. And so uh, through the Antiquities Act, he saved so much. And of course, that's really how I got into the book in the first place is I had been studying the Antiquities Act because of, as you mentioned, Bears Ears National Monument, a place that meant a lot to me. But wasn't it passed after Roosevelt had infuriated, infuriated Congress by his last minute creation of forest reserves? Uh, there was a lot of re- resistance to the his concept of forest reserves, wasn't there? Exactly. And he, he was somewhat probably inappropriately gleeful when he agreed, you know, there was, they had pushed through a ruling where he could no longer uh, create those reserves and he agreed to it. But before he did, he and Gifford Pinchot got together and saved, you know, thousands and thousands of acres at the last second. Um, And there's a tradition also, you know, as he was going out of office, he saved Mount Olympus National Monument and that became kind of a tradition in the making of national monuments. And just for the listeners who, when I'm describing national monuments, that's what's created out of the Antiquities Act. And I can go into more detail about the antiquities if, if you'd like me to. Uh, sure. But first, uh, you brought up the name of Gifford Pinchot. What position did he serve uh, Roosevelt in? He was because they, they, had, they had different philosophical they had philosophical differences about conservation, didn't they? Go ahead. Yeah, to, to fact, talk you about could it. Put, you could kind of put, you could kind of line up Muir, Roosevelt in the middle, and Pinchot on the more what we would now call the wise use, which is a term that's been kind of mangled over the last century. But um, Pinchot believed, you know, he's in charge of the forests, and he believes in um, the use of the of the um, resources. Uh, though he also, without him, uh, there's some statistic in there. I, I, I don't know if I'll be able to dredge it up, but it was just if they had not slowed down in terms of cutting down trees, it was we would basically have denuded the continent within a decade. And so as much as Pinchot believed in wise use, he also put the brakes on, you know, just on clear cutting, basically. So Pinchot. There were no attempts to replace. Pardon? There were no attempts to replace the trees that were being cut. Yeah, I mean there were seedlings, but I mean he was it was the very very primitive beginnings of forestry and he was a little more sophisticated. He'd actually studied forestry. So but the classic um fight uh you know is Muir and and Pinchot in terms of um the damming uh you know the the there's Muir is always fighting for the pure nature. Uh, Pinchot is 
uh, considering resources and, and you feel like Teddy is in between, Roosevelt's in between kind of being pulled one way and then, then the other. He did uh, create the present day U.S. Forest Service in 1905, yes. but Congress eventually limited his power to create forest reserves. Exactly, exactly. And they, you know, they... Um, because uh, because uh, because they want to cut down the trees, it was it uh, the uh, uh, were they just uh, was this similar to the kinds of thing we see today where uh, uh, oil drillers and uh, and the like uh, uh, have a real impact on members of Congress? Exactly, that's exactly what it was, and that's why, as those you know, as forestry and interior and BLM. You know, you started to see the the kind of the business side, the what will become the fossil fuel side of, of public lands, whereas in the Antiquities Act and with Roosevelt and with what Muir is trying to do, you're trying to preserve it without, you know, hollowing out and without um, using the land. So you're exactly right. That's what that's what the influence was. And of course, it's the same thing. It was money. You know, the mm -hmm. thing we forget about Roosevelt is he was called a traitor to his class. I mean, he's he's fighting against the moneyed interest. You know, he talks about the criminal elite that he's fighting against. So um, it's a it's a, a struggle that's almost exactly echoes our current struggle. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. My guest is David Gessner whose book is Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness, published by Simon & Schuster. You say he was a kind of a traitor to his class in their eyes because he was an Easterner who'd grown up rich and privileged in New York and also an asthmatic. Um, how did he come yeah. to be thought of as a conservationist president? Uh, what, didn't the uh, asthma slow him down? Well, you know, he... Um some speculate that he never entirely rid himself of it, but the famous story, the kind of mythic Roosevelt is the young, you know, the young man who, uh, his dad takes him out on cold coach rides to try to get him to be able to breathe again. And of course, in the brilliant, um, strategy of the time blows cigar smoke on him also to help him breathe. But, you know, his dad finally says, Theodore, you have the mind, but not the body. And you need to make your body and the whole, you know, the calisthenics and the building of the chest and the attempt to basically expunge, to purge uh, the sickliness from him um, becomes, for the most part, successful. And he constantly challenges himself physically. If there's a mountain around, he's going to climb it. If there's a, uh, you know, an animal to kill, um, he's going to kill it. Uh, he's... You know, uh, and his his kind of uh, uh, focus on what his dad practiced, which was muscular Christianity, it was called at the time, no more little meek Jesus for, for his dad, he turned into kind of muscular environmentalism, this kind of hearty um, uh, pedal to the metal um, drive to um, toward energy. He's got that famous line, uh, black hair seldom sits behind a rider you know, who rides fast. And so we, we, we escape our own kind of prison cell of our mind by, by physical activity. And, you know, that is most famous. 
his wife dies and his mother die on the same day, basically. And that's when he heads out to the Badlands. And that's when he really throws himself into physical activity and kind of purges the old uh, sickly Teddy. Now, I, uh, some time back, I interviewed Ryan Swanson about his book, The Strenuous Life, which argued that Teddy was also responsible for a movement toward physical education and the development of the popularity of sports in the United States. So uh, the, the, these things all seem to connect. Uh, you yeah, say, yeah. now he went out west. How long did he live as a Westerner? <laughs> Not very long. Um, you know, he says um, that that was the period of his life he loved most. But if you do the math, it doesn't add up to much more than two years of him visiting the ranch. But he really kind of remakes himself. At first, in a little bit of a pretentious way, he's wearing these, you know, basically – um, he's, he's got a Tiffany, a knife from Tiffany's, you know, and he's, he's posing really, but he soon kind of starts to prove himself just by his ability to work hard. And that's how he always, you know, he had a photographic memory. He could read a book a night, but the way he really defined himself was by effort, by the, um, you know, when he writes in his autobiography at the end of his life, he said, I wasn't a genius. I wasn't a brilliant man. But I, I was a trier. And he also, I would add, in the words of Wallace Stegner, was a grower. Um, he keeps moving from thing to thing. And I really do believe um, he's got some very dark parts of his, his personality. But I do believe he had a, the ability. He had the great gift of empathy. And they say as much as he loved to talk, and he, boy, did he love to talk. They called him a Gatling gun of conversation. He also was a really good listener, and he could focus in on you. Um, now, one thought. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to. Well, you should finish your thought. My only thought is I thought you'd like this. Uh, the famous scene that occurs when he's out west, when he has, when the boat thieves steal his bo boat and head down the Little Missouri, and he and his two ranch hands go after them, he grabs Anna Karenina, and he's, they're paddling through blocks of frozen ice and he's about to capture the boat thieves but he's also reading a novel in between which i've always you know read Tolstoy. yeah wow. one of the attractive things is you know he's so into physical exertion and as you said he clearly influenced that and in i mean there's so many things that um that became i mean birding was made much more popular thanks to tr you know he, he's got he's got there's a great you know john muir says uh, when you pick up one thing in the universe, you find it hitched to everything else. And I said in my book, that's particularly true when what you pick up is Roosevelt, because he's so multifaceted and he goes in so many directions. He was also interested in Darwin's work. Yes. In fact, um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is how our current leader does not seem very fond of science. And uh, if Roosevelt were in charge, uh, flaws and all, uh, his, he not only would listen to the scientists, he was a scientist. And his initial ambition as a young man was to be a naturalist like Darwin, a field naturalist, not a statesman, not a soldier. So uh, to have, you know, for me, the reason I wrote the book really is Roosevelt was prone to the prejudices of his time, certainly. 
And one of the places where I talk about that quite a lot is his attitude toward Native Americans. But I also think he was ahead of his time in the sense that he didn't have the prejudice so many people have, which is anthropocentrism, which is the inability to see beyond the human. And I really think his training as a naturalist as a young man and his love of being out in the wilderness allowed him to break through that that huge prejudice that so many of us have, which is not being able to see the world beyond ourselves. Now, I mentioned that he went uh, camping with John Muir in Yosemite. Yosemite was already a national park when he became president, so he didn't invent the the national park. In in the case of Yosemite, he did add to it, but he did help create other uh, parks, Crater Lake National Park in Oregon, uh, Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota, uh, Sully's Hill in North Dakota, uh, Platt National Park in Oklahoma, and also Mesa Verde National Park uh, in uh, Colorado. Um, the Indian tribe that uh, uh, con- controlled that, the, uh, that still is controversial, uh, the, the agreement that they made with the United States to uh, make that into a national park. But national parks are created by an act of Congress. So um, did he uh, face resistance uh, from members of Congress for all of those different parks? Well, you know, there was actually great support at the time. Uh, We're seeing a little bit, uh, though there are critics, certainly, of the Great American Outdoors Act. And and we can get into that, but... uh, one issue from our beginning as a country where there was overlap, where there was pun intended common ground between conservative and liberal people was in the creation of public lands. And after the civil war during which Lincoln uh, was the first to create a national park, uh, it it was not a us versus them issue. And most of those parks you described were in fact, uh, you know, Congress was the initiator of those. The National Monuments Roosevelt is doing. But progressivism is on the rise. It's the early, early 1900s. And there's enthusiasm for this. The the pulling back starts to come later. So, um, and you mentioned the tribes. Um, the, The thing that I get into in the book is the controversy over the the creation of parks, which has become very prominent now about them being on native lands and native hunting grounds. And that's true in in some cases. For instance, the very first um, national monument, which is Devil's Tower, famous for a close encounter uh, movie, uh, was native sacred land. Uh, Bears, uh, what do they call it? Bears Lodge is the name that they had for it. And so you do have this aspect where um, in some cases, not all cases, because in some it had already turned into private land that was reclaimed, you have land being taken out of native hands. And so this has become understandably a big issue. And one of the thrilling things for me about Bears Ears National Monument is that, and this is in Southeast Utah, in land that I used to camp and hike on all the time as a young man, is it's the creation, it grew out of the ideas and the planning of the five native tribes there, uh, led by the Navajo. And 
they researched the Antiquities Act, they studied the land, and they presented it. And Obama, in out, on his way out, basically, in December of 2016, declared Bears Ears National Monument, which was this great kind of, I call it in the book, a confluence between the old park ideal, where, you know, Wallace Stegner calls it America's best idea, and, it's, and an older idea of the land, which is the indigenous native idea of the land. And that confluence of those two things, to me, seems an extremely hopeful and exciting idea going forward. But of course, eight months later, October 27, 2017, Ryan Sinke, then Secretary of the Interior, standing in front of a portrait of Teddy Roosevelt on Roosevelt's 159th birthday, and this is Zinke calls himself a Roosevelt Republican, undeclares the land, um, 85% of Bears Ears taken away. And that case, which is also focused on Grand Staircase Escalani, another national monument that they reduced, is right now in a district court in the District of Columbia uh, being decided. And what's being decided is enormous. It's whether a president can undo the land, uh, the saving of land from a previous president. And if that were other. decided, which has never happened before, um, it happened one time before with Woodrow Wilson on Mount Olympus, but there, it wasn't, it was in the build up to World War One, and it wasn't contended in court. But if that were to happen, it would be the stripping of basically Roosevelt's superpower, that ability to save land through the Antiquities Act. Well, Teddy Roosevelt is one of the four presidents on Mount Rushmore. But uh, when <laughs> President when President Trump went there, uh, the local tribe uh, were picketing because they claimed yeah. that that's still a desecration of their land. And the the uh, we, we've been skirting uh, the uh, what Teddy Roosevelt said about Native Americans. Uh, there are some awful quotes. He's he spoke of Native yeah. Americans as squalid savages, and he justified the taking of their lands by force as a means to spread white European civilization. And, of course, he's remembered as saying, in effect, he didn't say this exactly, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. So right. Right. you've had to consider all of that, that for yourself. Not his, I'm not going to try to defend him, but that was not his line. But he did. No, no, he said it. nine out of ten could be dead. Yeah, yeah, but. yeah. yeah. well. I'm not going to try to balance it. Um, he did evolve. Uh, he did have many members of the Rough Riders who were uh, Native Americans. Uh, but he basically had similar, you know, you mentioned earlier, born in New York with a silver spoon in mouth. He had some similarities to our current president. And one was this America first, you know, um, we are destined to have this continent and Native Manifest destiny way. was... Manifest Destiny was uh, uh, the reigning philosophy at the time, wasn't it? Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, as I researched that, he's actually, we call him ahead of his time in terms of environmentalism. In terms of Manifest Destiny, it had been around for 50 years. He's actually behind his own time because he's still got this kind of, uh, you know, imperial idea of the United States. So, you know, we have to, we have to call him on that. Uh, and it's it's the truth and and to try to you know i was out there talking uh lewis williams this guide i had who was we were actually climbing up san juan hill in utah i'd earlier climbed up san juan hill um in the actual san juan hill but uh, we were climbing up san juan hill in utah and he started to talk to me about how much he hated lincoln 
and he because he he had been to Mount Rushmore, and it was because of the Sioux, you know, the the the, the 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 murder of the Sioux, and so, you know, I think this is you know, this is uh, valid stuff, but it also well, is complex for sure. For example, although Roosevelt felt slavery was evil. Didn't he believe that nearly, and we're talking about nearly half a century after the Civil War, that black people weren't ready to vote? He wrote, I do not believe that the average Negro in the United States is as yet in any way fit to take care of himself and others as the average white man. For if he were, there would be no Negro problem. Uh, We can cherry pick things, but he also wrote that the United States will not be a fully mature nation until we have a Negro president. And he also had Booker T. Washington to the White House and the NAACP celebrated his, you know, uh, at the end of his life wrote this, you know, just we had a friend in this man. So, again, you know, it's a uh, is he had um, racial ideas that, again, weren't of his time, but almost from before his time. And he had uh, he wrote a lot of unfortunate things as well, for sure. He was definitely. Uh, a an advocate for the buffalo and bison, he regretted the the gen, almost extermination. But um, did he uh, see it as the one good thing about uh, the extinction of of the great herds in general? Right. At one point, he said um, again, um, not <laughs> not a happy. Uh, sentence to read that the extermination of the buffalo made the removal of native people uh, more likely and possible. Yes, he did write that. We have to take a little break. Uh, we'll come back with more. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We also are streaming on WBAI.org. The gift of the public land to save our beauty He sailed the great white fleet to show them we were strong Some call him Teddy, just like a bear Fighting with courage, he really cared He led the charges up on San Juan Hill With all glory by his side before we get back to my conversation with David Gethner, I would like to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help it survive the current financial crisis that we're facing due to the pandemic. We need all of our listeners who are able to to step up right now and go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. And again, that that number is 516-620-3602, the website give to WBAI.org. And one great way to, to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a, a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month until you say, you, you want to stop doing that, is to become a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here at WBAI because uh, 
we it allows us to plan for the future. We know that we're going to have cash flow, but we've also lost a good number of them to the financial upheaval that the coronavirus has caused for so many of us. Uh, if your own situation is financially stable, why not consider signing up as a BAI buddy uh, to to make up for the listeners who had to suspend their memberships due to financial hardship? Um, uh, I'm pleased now to to welcome my executive producer Jesse Lent to this show to tell you about a special reward that we're giving to anyone who does sign up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of this show. Hi, Jesse. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Leonard. Great to be on the show. Yes, as he, as Leonard was saying, a BAI buddy is a sustaining member of the station, someone who makes a contribution of $10, $20, $30 a month, whatever you can do, taken out of your credit card, your debit card, whatever you'd like us to take it out of. You can stop anytime. And if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of our show, in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be delighted to send you a copy of the book that Leonard's been discussing today. That is Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness with our guest, David Gessner. And I you know, have been saying this in the last couple of shows. This has always been the case, but I, I want to make it crystal clear for everybody that if you call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to the web at give to WBAI.org, that's give then the number two, WBAI.org. If you sign up today, that's Tuesday, August 11th, 2020, to uh, become a uh, BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, We'll send you the book. You don't have to tell the person on the other end of the phone anything at the call center. You don't have to check any boxes on the web. Just by becoming a BAI buddy, you will automatically get this book sent to you, unless for some bizarre reason you don't want it sent to you. That's the only thing you need to tell us. So that book, give it to a friend. Read it as it is. Or give it to a friend, exactly. I mean, who wouldn't want? Whatever your feelings about Teddy Roosevelt are, this is the birth of the American national park system, the envy of many countries around the world. Uh, one of the best things the country did. I certainly agree with that statement. And this is a book that actually, and we love it when this happens, Leonard knows this, this book is published today. It is, uh, comes out today, August 11th. Um, you know, maybe you your local bookstore might be closed or maybe you've been afraid to frequent it because of the, the coronavirus. Well, we like to feel like one of our roles is being your virtual bookstore to let you know what's new and what's interesting. And uh, and, and we can be that in a in a more uh, uh, literal sense, if you'd like. And if you want to sign up again by calling five, one, six, six, two, zero. 3602 or by going to the web give to wbai.org and making a contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large we will send you uh we will send you this book and and uh, obviously Leonard this is not the only way that listeners can contribute but it is just a a fun way to uh to to get this book that you've been discussing Sure. If you just want to become a member or show support, uh, give us a call at that number and say, I, I would like to, to give $100 for WBAI or $50 or $20 or whatever amount you choose. Uh, the important thing is to really help this station, which is 
percent paid for by our listeners. We don't take money from advertisers. We don't take grants or anything. It's really 100% listener supported. So we need you to call that number, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to WBAI.org. And Jesse, I'd like to get back to my guests because there's so much to talk about. This book is just filled <laughs> with interesting stuff. So thank you. And I hope that everybody calls. Thank you, all of you who do. And, and uh, Leonard, if I guess. could just say, uh, just be sure everyone who's calling in or, or going to the web right now, be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us, thank you so much. And we're back now to David Gessner, his book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness from Simon & Schuster. Uh, we were t- you were talking about Great Bear and the significance of uh, Great Bear, the, the I mean, bear, Bear's Ears National Monument, not Great Bear. Yeah, How yeah. is it different? Uh, is it, you, you say that it's a, it was made a national monument more recently than others. Do you, do you feel the, rec- the, the creation of this monument would be a reconciliation in a way of, of the Roosevelt vision of wilderness and, and the claims of indigenous people over the years since? Yeah, I feel very lucky. You know, I, I, um, I wrote the book. I teach in a graduate program of creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And a lot of the people I teach with are perhaps more sensitive and more woke than, than old, an old man like me is. And I feel very lucky to be in this, um, in this uh, steeped in this um, group of people because when I went to this, I knew I wasn't going to write a Roosevelt hagiography. And after that declara- undeclaration by Zinke on October 27th, I decided I had to get out west and see these um, national monuments that uh, Trump and Zinke had reduced. And I ran into some people right away who pointed me toward a woman named Regina Lopez Whiteskunk, who was a Ute tribal member who was working on the Bears Ears um, proposal that went to Obama. And she was so nonjudgmental and so open and so thrilled to have been in Washington, D.C., advocating for this and feeling like she was part of the country's. I mean, one of the things that was so exciting to me about the Declaration of Bears Ears was that it was a place I cared about, a place I'd contributed to a book called Red Rock Testimony that had been distributed to Congress. And I felt personally you know, empowered by its, um, by its uh, declaration. Now, imagine if you were the native people in that corner, in the four corners, who had written up the original proposal, had studied the Antiquities Act, had decided they were going to save land that had been a sacred meeting place of the five tribes for thousands of years. They were going to declare it a national monument. To me, that takes all those things you were saying about Roosevelt, which are very true, and redeems it and says, here's a different way. Uh, Here's what I called the confluence of a new way to look at it. And I feel like what we need to do right now is, and this is something obviously going on with so many past figures where we're toppling statues, including Roosevelt's, which I think he would agree with that particular statue. But that's a great example at the American Museum of Natural History because we are taking that statue down at the same time they are renaming their Hall of Biodiversity after Theodore Roosevelt. So I feel like 
you know, I say at the book at one point, let's not throw out Teddy with the bathwater. Let's it's he told a good invigorating story over a hundred years ago. We have to tell a story in the age of climate change about the land where we still understand and value it. And we can use some of the narrative that he gave us, but some needs to be revised. And what I found in Bear's Ears was a kind of brilliant revision. It's right there in the document where Bear's Ears was declared, which reads more like a prose poem than it does an official document. It talks about the phenology of the land, the phenomenon of the land, the, what grows there, what native plants are there, what they were used for medicinally. And to me, it was just thrilling to have this kind of new way to look at the, the old, um, the old uh, Antiquities Act. Now, the Utes were the, the tribe that uh, Mesa Verde was kind of uh, sold out from. Uh, but yes. another of the tribes of the area, the Navajo, and uh, there's an Navajo group called Dine Bikaya. What are those words? Dine Bikaya. Bikaya. Dine Bikaya. Okay. The people, I don't the speak people. Navajo. I do speak Hopi. That's okay. Well, not Navajo, uh, the Navajo community, which of course is now being um, just devastated by COVID in the mm -hmm. same exact area, it, were the drivers behind this. But they did something very smart because the tribes, is the Ute, the Mountain Ute, uh, the um, the Hopi, they reached out to the other tribes. And these tribes at the time had like water rights fights and legal fights, but they unified first as, you know, and that was the first step. They had to get along as a group. And then they reached out um, to environmentalists and, you know, got, got Obama's ear. And so it was this idea, uh, they consciously decided not to play the um, you know, you stole our land card. It was it was this conciliatory um, effort, and it really worked until, of course, the new president came in and, and stripped it away. Um, and that was that was the driver for me. And, and what is his argument? What is his argument? Is there uh, are there any uh, things there that uh, would appeal to mining companies or uh, to logging right. well, companies? The the the, the kind of thing you read about right away was resources and oil and um, and fracking, but there really aren't great resources. Um, you know, they one of the things is Orrin Hatch had a lot to do with influencing Trump and uh, Trump doing a favor for him. And, you know, in the case of Grand Staircase Escalante, which has been you know, for decades had been a national monument and the people who lived nearby in the towns economically were benefiting from having the national monument nearby. But you got to remember that it had probably had something to do with the name of the president who declared it a national monument. And that name was Clinton. And so, so yeah. much of this was like, felt like grudge and just simply taking away what somebody before them had achieved. Um, and of course, resources as well, because oil companies had a hand in making the new maps, the reduced maps. So, yes. But Teddy um, Roosevelt was a Republican. Uh, do, do Republicans see this totally as a, a war against Democrats? Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Um, you had even as even as recently as Nixon, you had him talking about the breathing room of the nation and actually passed some of the most important environmental laws. So I still think- He created the EPA. I'm, yep. So maybe I'm being naive, but I still feel like this is one issue 
uh, where there's possible overlap. And, there, you know, one thing I've done a lot is travel for these books. Like I went down to the Gulf uh, during the BP oil spill. And the main character of the book I wrote there called The Tarball Chronicles was a big hunting guide who was a Republican and called Obama my president, you know, teased me and we teased each other. But we had one thing in common, which was the land and the water and that was being despoiled by BP. And I really feel like when you're not sitting at home watching TV, when you're out in the world like you used to be able to do, you see that there's an overlap when it comes to the, the land and environmental issues. So Teddy's a progressive Republican right before Wilson, where things start the shift, you know, but, but Republicans are drivers of the early um, environmental movement. So it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. Weren't of their parks declared even before the signing of the Constitution? Yes, and that was a um, that was a big decision um, to do two things. To um, as we moved westward, well, before that, um, to keep uh, public land that wasn't part of any state uh, was decided, and then when we moved westward uh, to for a state to enter the union. They had to agree uh, to, to public land. So it was, a, it was a revolutionary thing, and it's a huge part of, of what, you know, of, of what we have done that is good, though with the caveat of what you said before, we've taken land away from the people who were here, which isn't so good. And you said that uh, Abraham Lincoln, another Republican, uh, was uh, creating national parks. Yeah. And so... Um, and, you know, we uh, I think Trump has a picture in his uh, in his in the White House of him sitting around the table with other Republicans and um, and he's drinking a Diet Coke, Trump and Teddy's there next to him. And, you know, and Brian Zinke, the former secretary of the interior, loved to talk about what a Roosevelt Republican he was and how Teddy was his man. And I just cringe at the idea of like this guy who's taking away what Roosevelt saved. Um, but that's a common thing with Roosevelt. You know, if you if you did a poll of presidents, left or right or medium, um, other than Lincoln for his greatness, uh, Roosevelt's a very popular. Um, Elizabeth Warren, when she was running, was asked who, what former president she'd like to have as a running mate. And she said, Teddy, because he was brave. And that's one thing about him. He was not, um, you know, in this current climate, the cancel culture and whatnot, uh, who knows how he would have done, but one thing he wouldn't have done is back down. Um, I'm, 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 it, it makes me laugh how, the, you know, you said the book came out today. Uh, you know, the f real famous line from his daughter, Alice, where she said, my father always wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding and the baby at every christening. And that's one thing he did have in common with the current president is this love of attention, but it's amazing how many times he's been in the news in the last month, <laughs> not just, you know, Yosemite and the Mount Rushmore stuff and Trump saying, I'm this, as a conservationist, I'm the same or almost as good as Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And then the statue coming down and uh, it's just, I'm like, wow, he's in the news still <laughs> all these years later. 
Another controversy over uh, recent years has been the antiquities that are in museums all over the world that were taken right, uh, right. From, from these native lands. Um, now, uh, how does that work? Um, you say the Antiquities Bill was inspired by men like Richard Wetherill. Uh, what, who was he and what did he discover? Yeah, it's really it's really fascinating history. Um, Richard Wetherill was, a, a, you know, in a family of, of not ranchers, but like basically cowherds who his brother stumbled upon Mesa Verde. And mm. uh, that was a moment. There's a great book called The Professor's House by Willa Cather, which gives a fictional version of this. But that was a moment where Wetherill's life changed, and he started searching for these, um, we don't call them ruins anymore, but these um, dwellings all over the West. Mesa Verde is fascinating because they're cliff dwellings, but the buildings that are built into the cliffs are like uh, are multi-story buildings. So they're it's almost brilliant. like apartment houses. It's kind of stunning that this was all done before the Europeans ever came, and yet it looks like something that you uh, would have found in Europe. Yeah, and, and, and at the same time, it's extremely organic. I compare them to like uh, the, the nests of like cliff swallows. So it's this beautiful, artistic, you know, uh, uh, my former professor, Red Sonner, called it, it's as if you can see civilization in one building. You know, it's just a beautiful yeah. place. So, so Weatherall starts to uh, collect things he finds there, which is still an issue in the in the West. You know, um, and what happens is there there becomes this fight between Easterners who want to claim these things for their museum, and um, and Westerners. But the big moment is when a European comes in and takes all of these, um, you know, all this stuff from one of the the dwellings and ships it overseas. And that's... Gustav Nordenskjold. Yes, exactly. I, I wasn't going to try to pronounce his name. Nordenskjold. It's N-O-R-D-E-N-S-K-I-O-L-D. That's a very difficult name to pronounce. Let's call him Nord for now. Okay, Gustav. So Nord, Nord comes and takes this and... And, you know, people are enraged and and that is the beginning of the idea of like, we've got to protect these antiquities. However, what they didn't want to protect them from were Eastern museums. Um, that continued for a long time, right? So, um, so the original Antiquities Act has the wording, which has been very controversial about just protecting the land around the, um, where, where the dwellings are, right? But Roosevelt, interpreted that fairly liberally and and uh, and would save the land you know hundreds of acres around where the, the dwellings were well the Brooklyn Museum has an incredible collection of Native American artifacts but they have been sending some back to tribes that have asked yeah. for them so yeah. um, but not completely yeah well you know that's still it's still going on out there I mean in bears ears when I was out there with uh, um, hiking into the the different um, houses and dwellings. You could still see plates and bowls, and you know you see the carvings and the petroglyphs on the on the walls. And you, so you're you're hiking into really a living museum, and you 
are expecting people to be respectful, but of course people are people. And so there's a lot of people who take what they find there. So, it, and it's not like Mesa Verde, which it sounds like you've been to is much. I've more been to a lot of these fun. places. I hate, hate to yeah. admit it, but this is actually something that fascinates me because I've been to these places, uh, many of them. And uh, in fact, I went uh, horseback to Keith Seal. Uh, oh, Keith Seal is wonderful. Yeah. Fabulous. Uh, yeah. So I, I've been around, uh, fascinated by this uh, this story, and from the other angle, just watching, uh, looking at that history through what still survives uh, the the so called yeah. Anasazi ruins. But uh, yeah. it, it it's a it's an ongoing story, and now we have a new chapter with this president. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things about it, I always say. If you've only seen Utah in pictures or in Star Trek films, you haven't seen Utah. Um, and, you know, just you, you, as it, I grew up in Massachusetts and it was just so blown away by what I saw. But the other thing was, I remember hiking with a friend. Quickly, we're out of time. Go ahead. Deep, deep, deeply into Cedar Mesa after an hour long hike there in the middle of nowhere with nobody around and having seen no one on the hike was exactly what you described, an Anasazi village up in the wall, not in a museum, not with fences around it, but there right in the middle of the natural world. And that to me was one of the most stunning uh, nature moments or, or moments in the wilderness I'd ever had. It's been my great pleasure to have David Gessner as our show, on our show today. His book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness, published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks again. Uh, and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Fran Higgins, who pre uh, prepared this interview. If you're just discovering this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If there's anything you'd like to tell me about any of our shows, or if you simply like to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at bai.org. And we hope that you will consider becoming a member. The number again, 516-620-3602. Or go to our website, give to wbai.org. Uh, and if you call in and become a buddy, uh, you can get a copy of Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness, the book we've been discussing. Tune in tomorrow when directors Grace Lee and Marjan Safinia discuss their two-part PBS documentary series, and she could be next. See you then. <laughs>